Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're in part 4 of our series, A Call to Joy, which is our study in the book of Philippians. So we venture into chapter 2 today. Let me ask you this. You ever know someone who really needed an attitude adjustment? In other words, someone who's just gotten too big for their britches. You know, kind of like the little boy and his sister who were riding on the back of a new wooden rocking horse given to them as a present. And suddenly the boy turned to his sister and said, if one of us would get off, there'd be more room for me. (laughs) President Theodore Roosevelt was nicknamed Roosevelt I. One of his children once said, Father always had to be the center of attention. When he went to a wedding, he wanted to be the bride. When he went to a funeral, he was sorry that he couldn't be the corpse. See, far too often we find folks who need an attitude adjustment. Well, self-interest was antithetical to what Paul had modeled for and was trying to teach to the Philippian believers. Even though he was under arrest in Rome... Paul found joy in humbly following God's plan, which meant placing the needs of the Philippians before his own. And so he reminds them to conduct themselves like Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, even to death on the cross. And here in Philippians 2, Paul explains to us how joy comes through humility in our relationships with God and with others. In fact, the big idea behind our study this time around, is that we should live in love and humility even as Christ did. Now, Paul shows us how to do this in verses 1 through 11 here in chapter 2. For simplicity's sake, I've broken it down into three simple instructions. We are to, number one, imitate Christ in love. Look at verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, Paul's making a conditional statement here. In other words, if these conditions exist... Well, then this should be the result. What result? Well, you see that in verse 2, Paul's joy. Make my joy complete. Now, there's a few things that I want you to note in verses 1 through 2. First of all, I want you to notice reasons that unity thrives. Okay, now we see three here in verse 1. The first is supportive words. Encouragement in Christ, Paul says. Years ago, I went through a character and leadership training seminar with the Character Training Institute in Oklahoma City. And one of the lessons that came through loud and clear is that good leaders actually look for admirable qualities in those that they lead and then regularly praise them for it. 
Well, Paul said in Ephesians 4.29, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And he told the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. So supportive words. But then here's another one. Sympathetic hearts. If any consolation of love, if any affection and mercy, he says in verse 2. Paul told the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. In 2 Corinthians 1.3-4 says that God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So supportive words, sympathetic hearts, and here's the third one, spiritual fellowship. If any fellowship with the Spirit, Paul says. See, the Holy Spirit, well, he, he indwells each believer. He, he binds us together. That's spiritual fellowship. He unites us as brothers and sisters. We talked about that in, in last week's message. He partners with us in the gospel. We see that in John 16. He leads us in our service and worship, Philippians 3. And he helps us in our weaknesses, Paul says in Romans 8.26. So supportive words, sympathetic hearts, and spiritual fellowship are reasons that our faith thrives. And these statements have even more cohesion because each of these if statements is a motivation for unity which is what Paul is calling for in verse 2. If this, then. Okay, well, well, what's the then that's implied in verse 2? Well, the then shows us something else. It shows us the results of unity that thrives. Those supportive words, sympathetic hearts, and spiritual fellowships are going to result in unity. Now, these have already given Paul some joy But he says there's something else that will complete his joy, an attitude of like-mindedness. So if the Philippians would follow Paul's instructions here in verse 2, they'd create a church climate where unity would truly flourish. Now, what were those instructions? Well, basically that that you be one, be the same. Now, when Paul says the same thing, he means the right thing, the true thing. And he mentions three specifics. First of all, the same mind. He says, thinking the same way. Then the same heart, having the same love, he says, and united in spirit. But then the same purpose, intent on one purpose. Believers should possess a mutual love. Believers should set their minds on oneness and spirit and purpose. And that purpose, knowing God and making him known. And one of the byproducts of that sameness that he's describing is unity. So why is unity then so essential to the church? Well, because it's pleasing. I mean, David said in Psalm 133.1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Plus, have you seen a church that wasn't unified? It can be ugly. Disunity means dysfunction, and without unity, 
We can't very well achieve our common goal to be Christ to our world. God abhors disunity. So in verses 1 through 2, Paul encouraged the Philippians to get their heads on straight, to remember who they are, to remember whose they are, and their common mission as followers of Jesus. And his words remind us in the church today that when we grow together in purpose and in love, we experience joy. So Paul showed us that we are to, one, imitate Christ in love. But as we move to verses 3 and 4, we'll see Paul identify another key ingredient of unity in the church as he calls us to, number two, imitate Christ in humility. Verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Okay, so earlier we discussed reasons that unity thrives and the results of unity that thrives. But why does Paul emphasize these? Well, I think, if for no other reason, because of the reverse of a unity that thrives. I mean, what are some obstacles to unity in a local church? Well, there's selfish attitudes, of course. People out to accomplish their own agendas instead of remaining true to the gospel. You find desires for personal importance or unwillingness to compromise. A lack of personal submission to the Lord. Personal rebellion against God. Well, Paul's instruction here in verses 1 through 2, it, uh, it hints that there's a problem of disharmony within the congregation. And we'll find more about that when we get to chapter 4. But, but what did Paul say about self-centeredness in the body of Christ there in verse 3? Well, basically he's saying, just don't. Don't do it. Don't act with selfish ambition. Avoid vain conceit. A Milwaukee teacher took her first grade class to a dairy where a guide showed the children through the entire plant, explaining the whole process. And the tour over, the guide asked if anyone had any questions. And one little girl raised her hand asking, did you notice that I've got on my new snowsuit? Avoid vain conceit. Paul also told the church not just to consider their own interests, but more importantly, to look out for the interests of others. In this age of self-obsession, a lifestyle of thinking about others, it, it seems to be so rare. So Paul's words are needed more than ever. But what circumstances in life tempt us to ignore instructions in verses 3 through 4. Well, in the church, you know, we find some folks are just plain hard to love. I mean, there's no way around it. How do we love those people that we deem unlovable or the ones who don't want love from us? Well, that's where we pray and ask God to love them through us when our human capacity just isn't enough. But we also have circumstances like um, people who have no desire to unite with anyone or people who say, well, I believe I'm actually better than some of them. Why should I pretend otherwise? (laughs) Or those who are offended about everything, 
always carrying a chip on their shoulder. They done me wrong. I mean, you can insert your favorite country and western tune here because that's that's a great uh, theme for a country song. They done me wrong. But you see, these attitudes are the reverse of what Paul desires for the church at Philippi. So, what does humility really look like in relationship to other Christians? Well, that's what I would call the realization of a unity that thrives. You see, humility is having an honest opinion of yourself. It's not being inflated, not overrated. It's having modest thoughts about self, being unpretentious. A humble person knows his or her limitation and is willing to admit their need for help in certain areas. Now, on the flip side of that, I think a humble person also realizes their own strengths and makes those available to others freely. So how can a perfect unity of heart, mind, love, and purpose be realized in the church? Well, it begins with humility. So that means us not living for reputation. It means no rivalry. It means placing others higher than ourselves. It means an outward focus, not an inward one. And you know what? Christ was the living embodiment of these qualities. And as we're about to see, he's the ultimate example of humility. And humility is the essential lubricant in this machine we know as the body of Christ that allows it to function cooperatively in unity. So in verses 1 through 4, we discover that we are to imitate Christ in love and to imitate Christ in humility. And now in verses 5 through 11, we see why Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of love and humility for his followers. As we learn to, number three, imitate Christ in attitude. Now, what follows here in verses 5 through 11 is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament. Along with John chapter 1 and Colossians 1, it's one of the great Christological hymns that present us with a poignant picture of the nature of Jesus Christ. So let's pick up in verse 5. Paul says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's two major things I want you to notice about Jesus Christ in these verses. The first we'll call the emulation of Christ. See, in verse 5, Paul says that we should emulate Christ in three ways. First, we see that Jesus demanded nothing. 
Verse 6 says he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. See, Jesus deserves everything, but demanded nothing. See, verse 6 makes it clear that Jesus is, in fact, not a shadow of or representation of God, but God. This verse describes the status of Christ as he existed before the creation of the world. Jesus Christ was God, is God. Everything God is, Christ is. He's equal in all the same essential characteristics and divine attributes. Jesus Christ, God the Son, did not consider his godhood as a prize to be held. You see, the entire universe is his, yet he demanded nothing. How petty we must seem by comparison when we make demands of one another, when we insist on being addressed just so or treated just so or having everything done according to our own desires. You see, that's a consumer mentality, and it's contrary to the way Jesus acted because Jesus demanded nothing. Here's something else about Jesus we should emulate. Jesus became nothing. Verse 7 says, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Now, that verse trips up a lot of people, especially that word emptied. comes from the Greek verb kanao. means to render void or no effect. You probably heard pastors talk about the kenosis. That's the emptying. In this context, that word kanao, it, it, it specifically means relinquishing of position or prestige. So Christ voluntarily made his eternal position, rank, and privilege of no effect while on earth. Now, some people read that word emptied, and they think that somehow Jesus emptied himself of his deity. But there has never been a moment when Jesus was not God. Now, unfortunately, there are some common misconceptions about what Christ emptied himself of when he became a human being. Some people do think that Jesus set aside his deity, that Jesus ceased to be God when he came to earth. In other words, that Jesus was a mere human when he was on the earth and nothing more. But the Bible doesn't say that God changed into a human being, but rather that God became a human being without ceasing to be God. Jesus doesn't change. As the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, others think that Jesus set aside the use of his divine attributes, that, that Jesus gave up the use but not the possession of his divine attributes, that, that while he was fully God during his time here on earth, he didn't use any of these divine attributes like his omniscience, which is being all-knowing, or his omnipotence, you know, all-powerful. Well, you see, that's not entirely accurate either. The problem is that God couldn't somehow rid himself of these qualities and still be God. This Emptying couldn't have been with regard to his attributes as God because, by definition, God cannot cease being God. You see, in becoming a man, Jesus emptied himself in at least three different ways. First, he voluntarily accepted the 
limitations of being a human being. Second, his glory was hidden from the people, with the exception of him revealing his glorified form to Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration. But third, Jesus gave up the independent use of his divine attributes. In other words, Jesus had a self-imposed, willful limitation of his being all-knowing and all-powerful, etc. We still see examples in the Gospels of how Jesus used divine power to heal, to perform other miracles. We see how he knew things before other people knew them, how he knew things about people that no other human could know, and so forth. So, in short, these attributes were exercised as Jesus willfully submitted to the direction of God, the Father, and as the Father deemed the use of them necessary. So Jesus became nothing, meaning he willfully humbled himself. He willfully took on the limitations of humanity. Jesus chose to live the life of a servant who put his trust in his heavenly Father. Jesus chose to submit to the will of God the Father in every word and in every deed, supernatural and otherwise. So Jesus demanded nothing. Jesus became nothing. Here's another quality we should emulate. Jesus gave everything. He emptied himself of rank, privilege, and rights. Jesus became a servant to his Father and to others. More clearly than any other place in Scripture, the shape of the incarnation of God becoming flesh is described here. Humiliation, weakness, and obedience. Verse 8 says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. I think when Paul wrote this, he was likely thinking of the messianic prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Verse 12 there says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Christ humbled himself to death. Christ's humility is stunning. As Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Mark 10.45. That mindset of humility is what we need He's given us an example to emulate. King Jesus left heaven to be one of us, to obey his Father's plan, and to die so that we could be reconciled to God. But don't let Jesus' humility overshadow his authority. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.21, Jesus is exalted far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, Jesus reigns over all. And we see this in verses 9 through 11 with the exaltation of Christ. Now, real quickly, I want you to notice four things here in verses 9 through 11. First, that God has exalted him. 
Now, a more literal translation from the Greek might be uh, super exalted, as exalted as exalted can be. You know, back in my day, we would have said to the max. He was exalted to the max. God exalted Christ by raising him from the dead and opening the heavens to receive him back to his own right hand, Uh, a position of honor and power and authority. Not only that, but no name is above him. We also see this in verse 9. Now, if we look at these verses as a chronological chronological progression, then the giving of that name would have been something that took place after the cross. It's likely that that name is Lord. Okay, now, not the garden variety version of the word Lord, but I mean the equivalent of the Old Testament Lord. Now, when you saw that word Lord in the Old Testament, it was all in capital letters, which signifies a reference to God's personal name of Yahweh. In other words, identifying Jesus as Yahweh, as God. Now, this verse could simply mean when it says the name that is above every name, uh, it, it could be a figurative way of saying the highest place in the universe, a position of supremacy and dominion. But either way, look at what verse 10 says will happen in response to that name. It says, all creation will bow to him. All creation. A time is coming when every single knee will bow before Jesus in recognition of his kingship. And this universal acknowledgement will include angels and the departed saints already in heaven, people still living on earth, and the satanic hosts and lost humanity in hell. You see, You can joyfully acknowledge him as Lord today, or you can do it regretfully one day. But every knee will bow before him. Not only that, but here's another thing. Every creature will confess him. We see that in verse 11. A universal acknowledgement of Christ's sovereignty, even by his enemies. Every personal being will ultimately confess Christ's lordship, either with joyful faith or with resentment and despair. But all of this will be done to the glory of God the Father, Paul says. Recognition of Christ's lordship fulfills God's purposes and in so doing brings glory to God. So, The Savior humbled himself, but God highly exalted him. Jesus didn't seek a name for himself, but God gave him the name which is above every name. Jesus bent his knees in service to others, but God has decreed that every knee shall bow to Jesus. You see, we don't worship a babe in a manger or a sacrifice on a cross because that's an incomplete picture of who he is. We worship an exalted, victorious Lord seated on the throne of the universe. Christ's life and death and resurrection proved eternally that the way to be exalted is to be humbled before God. You know, there's no joy or peace and pride and self-seeking 
Because life isn't about pursuing our personal agendas at home or work or church. It's not about inflating our egos or increasing our social status or about satisfying our own lusts. Here's the amazing thing. Christ died for self-absorbed, self-glorifying people like us. He rose from the dead on our behalf, and he empowers us to follow his example. And, And guess what? When we have the submissive mind that Christ had, well, then we'll have the joy and the peace that he alone can give. And for those who don't think that way, well, then it's probably time for an attitude adjustment. Verse 5, Paul said, make your attitude like that of Christ Jesus. Okay, now how do we do that? How can we work to obey that command? Well, I can't give you a comprehensive list of things to do, but let me make some suggestions. Let me give you four action steps. Okay, now in addition to those supportive words and sympathetic hearts and spiritual fellowship that we saw in verse 1, begin with this. Meet a need. Meet a need. Find someone in the church who needs to experience the blessing of your Christian service and humbly serve him or her this week. And if you can, serve privately without needing recognition for yourself, you know, or or choose someone who can't pay you back. You see, we grow in humility when we serve others and put the needs of others ahead of our own. So meet a need. Now, here's one. Mediate a disagreement. Mediate a disagreement. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. So, you know, much of what Paul has written to us so far in Philippians, it it, it cries out for unity in the body of Christ. So if there's a conflict or disagreement that two Christians can't seem to work out on their own, maybe you need to humbly step in and, and offer to help the two restore peace. You see, that's one way we can live out Paul's instruction in verses 3 and 4 and and put others' needs above our own. Now, here's another thing. Memorize Scripture. Specifically, memorize Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul's hymn here was, was memorized and recited by the early Christians, and we should follow their example. Write it out by hand. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Live it. So memorize scripture. Here's the last one. Meditate on Christ. Meditate on Christ. In this passage, Paul gave us a compelling picture of ultimate humility. Jesus coming to earth as a man and willingly giving his life on the cross. But these verses also point to Christ's exaltation and humanity's ultimate confession and worship of Jesus. Allow Christ's all-sovereign lordship to inspire you to humbly bow and adore him. Meet, mediate, memorize, meditate. Those are good starting points. I think if we do these things, then we can begin to cultivate a life of humility. 
We can live in love and humility even as Christ did. That's the big idea behind this week's study. Oh, but here's a bigger idea. In fact, it's the biggest idea. Christ's humility will one day unify all creation in their common confession of him. We saw that in verses 10 and 11. So you can joyfully acknowledge him as Lord today, or you can do it shamefully at the day of judgment. But every knee will bow before him. Every person will ultimately confess Christ's kingship, either joyfully or bitterly. So why not do it today? Why not choose joy with Christ instead of despair without him? It's quite simply the most important decision you will ever make. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.